Well, thank you, worship team. It is good to sing the historical hymns of the church, isn't it? it absolutely is. Well, it's my privilege to be able to share with you from God's Word here uh, today. And it was an exciting weekend at Bethel last week, wasn't it? It was a very exciting weekend. For those of you who weren't here or don't know what I'm talking about, all three of you, Last Saturday night at the end of the evening service, Pastor Steve publicly proposed to his uh, relatively secret girlfriend, Jennifer. And uh, so if you were here Saturday night, you received quite a treat. And then in our Sunday morning services last week, we showed the video uh, of his proposal. And yes, Jennifer did agree to marry Steve without hesitation, I might add. And the video of this is posted on our website if you want to kind of take in this momentous experience for yourself. And I know after talking with many of you that this came out as a total shock and surprise for you. I mean, you had no clue that Pastor Steve was dating, let alone even getting close to be married. But here we are. It really is happening. We're very happy for Steve and Jennifer, aren't we? We absolutely are. That's right. And uh, I was more fortunate than most in recent months because I was able to see kind of the evolution of this relationship. You know, kind of from to watch Steve go from initial interests to then having doubts and fears and relational insecurity to then a growing excitement and affection and love and eventually a willingness to uh, declare his love for Jennifer with great boldness and even personal risk. Because it was a it was a risk what he did Saturday night, wasn't it? I mean, what would happen if she had said no? <laughs> what, what, what would we have done there? I have no idea. And I was charged with wrapping up the service, so that would have been very awkward for me. So I'm glad she said yes, for many reasons. In fact, but but watching Steve go through this process very much reminded me of of my own dating and courtship uh, experience with my wife, Jessica. I remember well the the process of growing in confidence and boldness and certainty in my love for her. And I was initially a little resistant to starting a relationship with her, in part because I actually had it out for one of her best friends. And, uh, but she was kind of a bit assertive, I think, uh, in part to rescue me from one of her friends. Uh, but eventually I kind of came along and I said, you know, I should probably give this a shot. And I remember the fear and anxiety of asking her out on our first date. And my heart was racing and my palms were a little sweaty when I first suggested we spend some time together. And even though that first date uh, went well, you know, those days of dating, those early days, were, were they're a bit nerve-wracking. You know, I'd kind of rehearse in my mind. Uh, every time I made a phone call, kind of before I picked up the phone, what I was going to say. And every time I wrote an email, I looked over that two or three times to make sure I was saying everything just right. And uh, my uncertainty and unease was heightened by the fact that about six weeks into our dating relationship, Jessica tried to dump me. And I, and I say tried to dump me because I said, no, you can't do that. I wouldn't let her do it. So you didn't know you could refuse a dump, did you? Um, I did, and apparently due to my suave, debonair, romantic nature, I convinced her to give me a little more time, and she started to come around. And then as the relationship progressed, things started to get more comfortable and natural, and I became increasingly confident. So eventually it wasn't hard at all for me to pick up the phone and give her a call. And in time, the confidence of the love I had for her grew to the point that uh, it was actually very easy for me to do something very bold, like ask her to marry me. And that's just how life works, isn't it? 
When you face something new, like a new relationship or a new job or responsibility at church or some environment in your life changes, you always start out in that situation a bit uneasy, a bit unsure. You're kind of on edge and you're careful to do everything just right. But as you get familiar with that, that new thing, what happens? You, you get more comfortable, you get more confident, and in some ways you become more bold. And it's easier to pick up the phone or to do that task or to have that conversation. This is true in just about every area of life, from relationships to even things like changing a diaper. If you think about it, I, I, uh, when, I, when our youngest daughter was, was first born and, and I had to change her diaper kind of for the first time, that was a challenging thing, all right? I was very careful to do it just right because there's a lot that can go wrong when you're changing a diaper, all right? And so you lay the diaper out just right and you get the wipes kind of just right and everything and you're just like hoping this, this works out. But what happens after you've been changing diapers for a while? You just like throw the kid down and go at it, right? Just boom, whoosh, whoosh, done. <laughs> Easy, quick, familiarity, experience and time with a particular thing. It just promotes a certain type of boldness, doesn't it? And we see a similar thing happening in the early church. Remember the disciples immediately after the crucifixion, they were huddled in a small room, fearful, discouraged, depressed. But after Jesus appeared to them, things began to change. And while many words can be used to summarize their ministry, one particular word is repeated with great frequency in the book of Acts. And so notice it here in these passages, Acts 4.13. Now, when the Jewish leaders saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. Acts 4.31, the the believers were filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. 14.3, so the disciples remained for a long time speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace. 18.26, Apollos began to speak boldly in the synagogue. 19.8, and Paul entered the synagogue for three months, spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. And the very last verse in the entire book of Acts, Acts 28.31, 31, boldly and without hindrance, Paul preached the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ. Boldness, boldness. Over and over again, the book of Acts describes key individuals as incredibly bold. Over and over again, it shows the early church is a group of people who put themselves out there and they engaged in confidence, sometimes even reckless gospel witness. Over and over again, we see the disciples and early church members as a group of people who are not ashamed of the gospel. A group of people who never doubted the gospel's truthfulness. A group of people who constantly declared with boldness that Jesus is the Christ and that salvation is found in him alone. And this represents a remarkable change. Immediately after Jesus' death, the disciples were timid. They were a pitiful, small, little, fearful band of followers. But soon they discovered great boldness. And through that, they turned the world upside down. And today we're going to examine the boldness of the early church, particularly by looking at four characteristics of their boldness. And then also by looking at four different causes for their boldness. So four characteristics of boldness and four causes for boldness. And so let's start by digging into Acts chapter 5. So turn there if you would. I'm going to work through a lengthy passage of Scripture and follow along with me in your, in your Bibles. Now, Acts chapter 5, some commentators think that this chapter takes place just a few months after Jesus' ascension and the coming of the Holy Spirit, other commentators think it's actually been a couple years since then. But regardless of the timeline, uh, it's certain that the church is still very new. It's still pretty much just localized in Jerusalem. And we also see that this incredible change has taken place, happened to the disciples of boldness. So let's, let's kind of work sequentially through the story, starting in uh, verse 12. It says, Now many signs and wonders were done regularly among the people by the hands of the apostles. 
And they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so, the, so that they even carried out in, uh, the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least a shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. Here's an incredible picture of growth. Remarkable miracles are being done by the hands of the apostles. Verse 16, the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits were brought to them, and they were all healed. Remarkable stuff happening. And regional interest in Christianity is growing. We see that in verse 16. The people also gathered from around the towns, uh, from the towns around Jerusalem. And so the word's getting out and people are coming in to see what this Christian movement is. It's not just contained in Jerusalem anymore. We also see that there's actually incredible respect for these early Christian leaders. Verse 13, none of, none of the rest dare join them, but the people held them in high esteem. So these guys were, were respected. And admired by many. And ultimately, more and more people were coming to faith. Verse 14. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. So here's a church on the move, experiencing some incredible growth. These new Christians were the talk of the town. At this point, they weren't maligned or persecuted. Rather, they were sought out and admired, but not by everyone. Look at verse 17. But the high priest rose up. And all who were with them, that is, the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. When they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now, here's one of the first clear accounts of persecution for early Christians. We see the religious leaders in Jerusalem jealous of their growing ministry and grabbing the apostles and locking them away. But we also see... The first of several jailbreaks in the book of Acts. Verse 19, but during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out. And it's amazing what the apostles do as soon as they're busted out of the slammer. Verse 21 says they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. That's pretty incredible, isn't it? It's like they immediately thumb their nose at the leaders and say, you can't stop us. You put us in jail. Ha ha. We're out of there. And you know what? We're coming right back on your turf the Jewish temple, and we'll continue there to declare with boldness that Jesus is the Christ. And as the chapter continues, we see that the religious leaders are not going to take this affront lying down. We look to verse 25, and we see this. And someone came and told them, Look, the men who you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. And the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council. And the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charge you not to teach in this name, yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. And you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. So the apostles were brought before the religious leaders again. And the leaders said, Hey, we strictly charge you not to teach in this name. What are you doing? You see, the disciples refused that. They had continued to do so. And notice the fruitfulness of their ministry. Verse 28, Jerusalem was filled with their teaching. Something was happening. And the religious leaders, they were not happy with it. They were nervous and jealous. They called the disciples in again and said, just basically, shut up. But Peter responds to their command. Notice verse 29. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging on a tree. God exalted him in his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. Then when they, the religious leaders meaning, heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. 
So what you see here now is classic Peter. Bold, brash, to the point. Verse 29, we must obey God rather than men, he says. And by the way, this Jesus we're proclaiming, you killed him. You're on the wrong side of history, guys. Because this Jesus, he really was the Messiah, and you killed him. Now, how's that for boldness? The religious leaders were on the cusp of jailing these guys for the second time in two days, and Peter gets in their face. You have to imagine that there are probably some more timid disciples there. who are kind of like, uh, Peter, you're getting us into a bit of trouble here. You maybe just hold off a little bit. Late, late, just, just chill out. Just take a little bit easy, please. Come on, let's not, let's, not, let's not be so provocative here. But Peter laid it all out there. Incredible boldness, even in the, amid the threat of real persecution. And obviously, this was of great offense. Look at verse 33. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. And what follows then is actually an interesting debate among the religious leaders. In particular, a Pharisee named Gamaliel uh, speaks up. And he actually gets the apostles off the hook. And just to summarize, Gamaliel argues this. He says, you know, we've seen lots of movements in the past. There's been plenty of fringe movements that have been disruptive. But you know what? They never last. All these fringe movements, they come, they kind of create a little havoc, but they eventually die. And that's going to be the case with this one. Hey, but, but, you know, just in fact, it is a movement of God. You're not going to be able to stop it anyways. So just let it be. Either it will go away or it's of the Lord. And we see in verse 39 that this argument, it was persuasive. Verse 39, so they took his advice. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they, meaning the disciples, left the presence of the council rejoicing that they counted worthy that they were kind of worthy to suffer for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. And so while Gamaliel's argument was persuasive and the apostles were released, they were also severely beaten. And they were strongly told, don't ever speak of this Jesus again. But what did the apostles do? Still probably bloodied and bruised. The text says in verse 42, every day in the temple, And from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Every day, they continued to go onto the religious leader's turf, the temple, and proclaim the message of Christ. And they essentially went door to door, house to house, talking with people about Jesus. Now, how's that for boldness? Now, it's debatable if this strategy is good in today's culture. You see, if we thought that we needed to follow here precisely their example, we would constantly be exhorting you to go door to door, ring doorbells here, hand out some tracts. Or we would constantly be going into hostile territory to publicly preach the gospel. Like what if your pastors, like every day, went into a Jewish synagogue or over to the Islamic mosque over here and we stood in the foyer and even if the leaders there said, we're going to arrest you, we said, forget it. And we just continued to preach and teach Jesus in that setting. And we could do that. It would certainly be bold, wouldn't it? But it wouldn't necessarily be wise. See, boldness needs to be tempered by wisdom. And how do you be bold in your gospel witness, but at the same time wise? How do you balance this difficult matter? That's, that's something we'll get to here at the end. But first, let me share with you four key characteristics of the disciples' boldness that we see in this particular passage, but also throughout the entire books of Acts. So four key characteristics of the disciples' boldness. Here they are. The first is this. They were courageous. They were courageous. One criticism you certainly can't make of the disciples in Acts is that they were fearful. Far from it. 
They were incredibly courageous men. Their whole ministry was typified by going into hostile territory, places where they could easily be run out of town or arrested or beaten, mistreated, persecuted. And this is basically what happened most of the time. Whenever they stood boldly for Christ, they were persecuted in some way. Like what we see in Acts chapter 5 here, where the religious leaders threaten the disciples. They beat them. They, they say, hey, don't you dare speak of Jesus. We're going to bring you in here and beat you some more. Now that's some heavy fear. That's some strong intimidation. You would think that this would cause many of them to shrink back and to be fearful. But it didn't deter their witness. They are incredibly courageous in their commitment to be emboldened witnesses for Christ. They're courageous. There's another characteristic. They're also confident. They're confident. You never sense in Acts the disciples doubted the truths that they were proclaiming. You get the sense they're 100% confident in the message that they shared. Look again at Peter's words in Acts chapter 5, starting at verse 30. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. Now, do you sense any bit of uncertainty here? Do you sense any lack of conviction? Not at all. No way. These guys knew what they believed. They knew why they believed it. They're not ashamed of the gospel and they were totally confident in his claims. They knew it to be true. And so they proclaimed what they knew with total unabashed confidence. They were confident. Here's another characteristic. They were selfless. They were selfless. It's easy to see this one, isn't it? And here's a bunch of guys thrown into jail, beaten, threatened, told, basically, hey, you know what? We're going to leave you alone. You can have a nice life. Just don't tell people about Jesus anymore. Just be quiet and everything will be fine. Now, that's a pretty tempting offer, isn't it? Probably to some, and, and I'm sure some, because of their inside, their selfish nature was crying out, take the easy road. Give in to the dark side. But they didn't. They were selfless. They put their lives on the line for the gospel. And in most cases, they ended up losing their lives for the sake of Christ. What great selflessness. And their emboldened witness was characterized by a constant denial of self and a stalwart commitment to the priorities of God, even if those priorities required great personal cost. They were selfless. And here's a fourth characteristic. They were eager. Eager. These dudes weren't like, hey man, let's just like chill out and hang. We'll get, we'll tell people about Jesus when it's convenient. When it comes up naturally in a conversation. We'll get around to it someday. Or, you know, sometime maybe this year I'll talk with my neighbor about Jesus. No! These guys, they couldn't wait to tell people about Christ. Remember what we see in Acts chapter 5. Verse 17, we see him thrown in jail. Verse 19, an angel busts him out of jail. Verse 21, we read, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. When do they get back to boldly teaching others about Christ? It says at daybreak. At the crack of dawn, they were back at it. Mere hours after getting thrown into jail, they were right back doing the things that got him into jail in the first place. Why? Because they were eager to tell others about Jesus. They couldn't wait. There was something inside of them that compelled them to be bold witnesses for Christ. They were excited for the gospel and that excitement could not be contained. And that's why verse 42 reads, and every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Every day they never stopped telling people about Jesus. Their message couldn't be contained. They couldn't keep quiet. They had to get this message out and they were incredibly eager to do so. So 
What were the four characteristics of the disciples emboldened witness? They were courageous, not fearful. They were confident, not doubtful. They were selfless, not selfish. And they were eager to tell others about Jesus. They were in no way lackadaisical about it. Which now begs the question for us. How well do we embody the characteristics, these characteristics, when it comes to our evangelistic witness? Is Bethel Church truly courageous in telling others about Jesus? Or do we sometimes cower in fear? Worrying about what someone might think of us. Are we truly confident in the message we have to share? Or in our heart do we doubt the truthfulness of the gospel? Are we selfless in our opportunities to proclaim Christ? Instead, are we really not willing to take a risk and put ourselves out there because we realize it could come at real personal cost? Are we truly eager to share the gospel with others? Or sharing the gospel kind of something we just feel we'll eventually get around to? but we just never seem to get there. Friends, let me be honest. If I were to assess Bethel Church and the evangelistic culture of our community, I would say we have a long way to go in this regard. In many ways, we are not courageous and confident and selfless and eager. In many ways, the evangelism of this church, it is not emboldened. It is stifled. Stifled by fear, doubts, selfishness, Selfishness, insecurity, dismissive lack of urgency. Being truthfully honest, I don't think my own life as a pastor really possesses these characteristics in the way that I ought. So I think many of us need to repent. And we need to resolve to up our game in this area. And we said publicly countless times that we want to be a church that is going to them. We want to be bringing the gospel to the people in our community. How's that going for you? How have, you, how have you been doing reaching your neighbors or your co-workers for Christ? When was the last time you walked someone through the plan of salvation? When was the last time someone inquired of you the reason for the hope that you have within you? When was the last time you did something gutsy, something bold, something courageous to make the gospel message known? Are you mostly content just to do the happy church thing? And never share the message of salvation with people who are presently under the fearsome and consuming wrath of God. We need to be a community of people who are not just content to gather together and be a nice, comfortable, happy little family here. The church is a family for sure. It is. But it is also an army. An army an army who is bent on a mission to advance the kingdom of God and is ready to go out to battle for Christ in courageous, confident, selfless, and eager ways. In fact, with most armies go out to battle, do you know what they usually carry with them? Almost all armies have some sort of emblem or a flag to represent their cause. And do you know that Christians have a flag? We do. There's a universal Christian flag. Here it is. Put it on the screen. It's a very simple yet symbolic flag with a cross in the corner in red, the blood of Christ. The main body of it is just pure white because Christ has washed us pure as snow from our sins. And as believers, we need to be headed out into battle confidently, boldly, vigorously waving this flag as we go. And so let me share with you a little illustration I've seen elsewhere, I've used here before. 
with our small groups about six years ago. You see, we all have our own flags, right? Our flags all look a little bit different. Some people have a flag that looks like this. It's this tiny, little, insignificant thing. They kind of wave this flag. pathetic you don't want to have a flag like that that's so small so timid not at all bold but people have a flag looks kind of like this a little bigger more prominent wave it around a little bit it's good kind of cautious about it but as soon as like it gets a little risky they feel like they're maybe in a little danger the shots fired <laughs> They're kind of, is this safe? You know? They're just kind of waving it when it seems convenient or safe. Other people take their flag and they just kind of shove it in their pocket like this. Just have it there. People are like, hey man, what's that, what's that flag in your pocket? Oh, that's my Christian thing. Don't worry about it. What do you think about the bears this year? No, seriously, what is that thing? What is that thing that you do? Ah, this is something my, my, my wife has me do. How's your golf game? Right? They just don't take ever advantage, opportunities to wave their flag. Other people, they take this mediocre flag out. And they come to church on Sunday, it's like, woohoo! Waving my flag for Jesus, love Christ, love the gospel, yes! And then they leave here, go out in the world, and it's like, whoosh, gone and then they go to their small group and it's like woohoo love god's word love the bible love all you love jesus and they go back to work on the community gone right so sometimes we wave our flags that's not the bold confident witness that we see that god calls us to you know what our flag ought to look like i'll look like this all right This is what our flag ought to look like. Not some small, timid, pitiful little banner that we wave around when it's convenient, but a banner that is bold, that is big, that is confident. We go in the world and we wave this thing with confidence and certainty and courage and selflessness and eagerness. That's right. Because we're not ashamed of the gospel. Because we're not fearful of the consequences that come when we speak the truth. Because we know that this banner represents a message that is so precious to each and every one of us. And a message that every single person needs to hear because eternity hangs in the balance. And so we take this banner and we hold it high. And we wave it strong and boldly, courageously, confidently and eagerly every moment that we have. This is what the church is called to do. And this is what Bethel needs to be. Waving our flag in that way. It is a challenge, isn't it? It is a challenge that God's words calls us to do. So how do we get there? How do we become a people that wave our flag like that? That's how I want to be. 
that how you want to be? Is that how our church needs to be? Absolutely. But thankfully, the book of Acts shows us several different causes for the emboldened witness of the early church. Several different causes, things that caused them to be bold. So let's look at four of them. First is this. They were indwelt with the Holy Spirit. They were indwelt with the Holy Spirit. Pastor Steve did a good job last week showing us how the Holy Spirit is an indwelling, invigorating, inspiring presence within the church. That genuine believers have the Holy Spirit within them to give them the very attributes of boldness we've been discussing here. And so the Spirit gives us courage and confidence and selflessness and eagerness. And if you're in Christ, you have the Spirit within you to give you power and boldness for this mission. Remember what Jesus said at the beginning of the book of Acts when he commissioned the church with this mission. He said in Acts 1.8, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses. The command to be witnesses, it's very clear, but notice what precedes the command. And it's an encouragement, really. Jesus says that we'll, be, we'll receive support in our efforts to live out this command. And that support comes directly through the Holy Spirit. We also see that in Acts 4.31. And when they had prayed, meaning the believers in general, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Notice what happens here. The believers pray for help. And then God moves. He literally shakes the earth. And then the Spirit comes and fills the people, and then they speak the Word of God with boldness. There's a direct correlation here. People pray, the Spirit comes, and the people get bold. Which means that if you lack boldness in your evangelistic witness, perhaps you need to do what the believers do here. You pray. Pray that God, through His Holy Spirit, fills you with the courage and the confidence and the selflessness and the eagerness to proclaim God's truth. And so if you struggle to be bold, how often are you praying about that struggle? Are you really asking the Spirit to empower you and to give you the boldness that you need? If you're not, do it. Pray for it. And if you're still not bold, then pray some more. Ask the Spirit to come in and to give you that help that through His aid you can discover incredible courage and confidence to be a bold witness for Christ. That is the first cause for their boldness. Spirit. Here's the second. That a life-changing experience with Jesus. The life-changing experience with Jesus. The disciples regularly reference their experience with Jesus as a motivation for their ministry. Here's two examples. Acts 4.19. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. In other words, we've seen these incredible things. We can't help but talk about it. We know it's true. We can't help but talk about it. We've had this experience. It has to be shared. We have to share it. And similarly, in Acts 5, 32, Peter now, again, before the the religious leaders who were challenging him, hey, don't talk about this anymore. Peter says, but we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. In other words, we've seen this. We cannot deny it. And so why did the disciples have such boldness? It was because they had a life-changing, undeniable experience with Christ. They spent great time with him. They knew him. He had made an incredible difference in their life. Now, granted, they had an unusual advantage. They spent years with Jesus in the flesh. They were eyewitnesses to his death and resurrection. They, they, they met and spent time with the risen and exalted Christ. So, yes, they did have particular advantages, but they also had an incredibly difficult calling. And God needed men who had a particularly intimate and physical encounter with Christ to lead the beginning of the church. But, while, but today, while Jesus is more hidden, 
we can still have a genuine life-changing experience with him. And those experiences can and should fuel our boldness to be witnesses for Christ. Why? Because as we have experiences with Jesus, he proves himself to be real to us. And this builds our confidence. And it defeats our doubts. And as we are changed by him and we are blessed by him, we cannot help but share with others the difference Christ is making in our life. And so how how do we have these life-changing experiences with Jesus today? By encountering him in God's word by fellowshipping with him through prayer, by experiencing Jesus through others as we immerse ourselves in the body life of the church. And when this happens, your confidence in Christ increases and the real difference he makes in your life, it becomes undeniable. And thus you grow in boldness. You also grow in the urgency that you feel because Jesus has made an incredible difference in your life and you desire others to have that same experience as well. So if you lack boldness... It might be because Jesus needs to be more real to you. And so you ought to pursue him with total earnestness. You ought to strive to have an undeniable, life-changing experience with Christ. Because by doing so, your boldness will also increase. And thus, wave your banner high. Here's another cause for the early church's boldness. They were burdened by Christ's command to evangelize. They were burdened by the command they were given. From the beginning of the book, the disciples knew they were given a very serious responsibility. Again, Acts 1.8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses. In Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Jesus had given them this mission. They knew they had to follow him and obey his command no matter what. And the simple fact that Jesus had commanded them to be bold witnesses was reason enough to do it. In fact... Twice when questioned why he was being so bold, Peter gave this answer. He said in Acts 5.29, but Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. We've been told to share this message. We're commanded. We have to do it. Similarly, Acts 10.42, Peter again challenged, why are you sharing this message? This is what he says. And he, Jesus, commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. So we see that one reason for the disciples' courage and selflessness was simply this. They were doing what they were told. They were told to be bold. It wasn't an option for them. It was a matter of obedience. And their commitment to obey their Lord motivated them to action. And friends, the same should be true for us. Why should we be bold in our witness? Because Jesus has told us to do it. Why should we make sacrifices? And be selfless in our efforts to advance the kingdom of God because Jesus has commanded us to make those sacrifices. Take up your cross and follow me, he says. To not be an emboldened witness for Christ is to disobey. This mission is not an option. It is a command. And our desire to please our Savior and to do what he says ought to motivate us to be obedient in this area and to be bold. We're commanded to do it. And here's a final reason for their boldness. They kept an eternal perspective. They had an eternal perspective. The disciples knew that the eternal destiny of souls weighed in the balance. They realized that if they did not boldly share this message, countless people would face a godless eternity. And the cost of that was far too grave for them to become lackadaisical in their mission. They considered the cost. And this gave them great eagerness, great urgency. It gave them great boldness. And how often do we consider the cost? In particular, how often do we consider the cost of our inaction 
You see, we often consider the cost of our actions. Like, if I take this risk, this bad thing could happen to me. I could be ridiculed. Or, or, or if I speak boldly about Christ, that relationship might go south. Or I might look foolish. We often consider the cost of our actions. But how often do we consider the cost of our inaction? Of not sharing the gospel with the opportunities that God gives us. What's the cost of, of not doing it? See, God has put unbelievers into our life for a reason. And presently, those non-Christians are on a trajectory that will cause them to be forever under the wrath and judgment of God. That's a sobering thought. It's a painful and unpleasant one. But it's one we must never forget. And we must, we must spend, we must discipline ourselves to spend uncomfortable moments dwelling on the justice and the wrath of God. And as we consider the eternal destiny of those who do not know Christ, that will compel us to action. It will create within us a boldness that cannot be denied if we keep that eternal perspective. So there you have it. Four characteristics of the emboldened witness of the early church and four causes for their boldness. So as you look at that list of characteristics, do you see a weakness for you on there? Is there a characteristic that you really need to grow in? A couple? All of them? If so, then what, what cause might you pursue to help you increase in that boldness? What do you need to do? Pursue Christ more? Pray more? Seek the Holy Spirit more? What is it? Think about the reality of heaven and hell more. We need to pursue these things with earnestness and with seriousness. It is of utmost importance that we wave this banner of our faith boldly. Are you making every effort to do so? Let me close by offering some practical tips for effective witness. See, there's many all sorts of different specific ideas or strategies I could share of how to do this, but let me just share with you now five. Five practical tips for effective outreach ministry, all right? Quickly, the first, be bold but conversational. Be bold but conversational. Don't just cram the Bible down people's throats. You know, talking with people about Jesus, it shouldn't be a presentation. It should be a conversation, a dialogue, where you ask questions and you have a back and forth. You don't just lecture. And as you do that, as you have that conversation, you know, just allow your own personality to shine through. You know, there are big as we look through the book of Acts, we see that there are big evangelistic differences between Peter and Paul. They went about sharing Christ very differently as their personalities were differently suited. It's kind of like Tony Sorcy and Brad Lagos. Okay? Tony Sorcy, he's kind of like Peter. Like a force of nature. Coming at you. Like, hey man, here's the gospel. Boom! And I'm kind of more like Peter. Hey, why don't you come on, let's sit down, let's talk this through, let's reason this out, kind of professorial, right? Listen, God has given us unique personalities. Share Christ in accordance to who you are. Be okay with that. Which leads me to the second point. It's kind of funny, but it's true. It's simply this. Be normal. Be normal. You know, a lot of people think you've got to kind of shift into a different gear when you share Christ. You don't. Just be yourself. When a normal conversation, just kind of bring up the church thing. Say, hey, I was doing this with my uh, friends at church this weekend. You know, you go to church. Do you do any of that? Just kind of work that in there. and Have it be part of a normal conversation. You see, a lot of spiritual damage happens when in evangelism, when people just become weird. Okay? They become weird and they try to share Christ. You know what I'm talking about, right? Listen, just be yourself. Be normal. Also this, make repeated efforts 
We see this in the life of Paul. He made repeated efforts. Sometimes he spent months in one place continuously interacting with the same people over and over again about the claims in the gospel. Sharing Christ is not just a a one-time event. It's not just a drive-by thing. It often requires an ongoing conversation and repeated efforts to share and show the love of Christ. So make repeated efforts. Also this, trust in the Spirit. It's ultimately His work. You realize that people coming to the faith, it doesn't depend on your effective presentation or your clever arguments. It happens by the initiative of the Holy Spirit who softens the heart and makes somebody receptive to the gospel. And don't sit, don't, don't sit there and feel pressure that it all depends on you. Don't sit there overwhelmed with guilt when it doesn't work out how you hoped that it would. You see... You need to have those bold words, that bold witness, because that is something that is often instrumental in someone coming to the faith, but it is not ultimately the cause of it. Okay, We need to remain humble about this and trust that God would use our feeble words to enliven hearts towards Christ. Trust in the Spirit is ultimately His work. And finally this, seek collaboration and help in evangelistic efforts. Seek collaboration and help. You know, we're not alone in our efforts to share Christ. We have one another. And so in your relationships or in your small group, for example, you need to be sharing with each other. Hey, I'm trying to present Christ to my neighbor or to my coworker. Will you pray for me for that? Would you challenge me on that? So the next time we get together, ask me, hey, how'd that conversation go? Did you, were you intentional there? Did you bring that up? Iron sharpening iron. Spur one another on in our evangelistic witness. We need to be doing that. Because our tendency has become lackadaisical and we need to help drive each other in this direction of waving this banner high and strong. Let's collaborate. Let's help one another in this. That needs to happen just kind of individually throughout our church. It also is happening, believe it or not, somewhat corporately with our corporate leadership in our church. I want to tell you about something that's been happening here kind of behind the scenes a little bit, but I think is exciting. This past fall, we written, produced, distributed a guidebook. It was called the Salt and Light Guidebook. Here's a picture of the cover. Many of you have seen this. What this guidebook does is it just details all kinds of spiritual needs and physical needs within our, our region here of northwest Indiana in the intention of getting people serious about going out and meeting those needs and, and, and through that ultimately building the gospel, Christ's kingdom. And we produced this guidebook. We distributed it here to all of you. But we also have a couple of guys on staff, Jason Topp and Joey Mayfield. And these two guys have been charged with intentionally going out beyond our congregation, spreading this guidebook around, sharing it with other churches, organizations, in hopes that they too will rise up. and want to take more seriously the call of waving this banner here high and strong. You know what's happened? As we've done that and interacted with leaders and pastors in other churches, God's put together, he's putting together a coalition almost, kind of like a movement. There's over a dozen churches or so now that have have publicly made this guidebook available, talked about it in their services. There are, uh, in fact, since January, there's been a collection of leaders, pastors and others from a dozen different churches, including our own, kind of under the spearhead and leadership of Bethel, that have meeting together talking about how can we impact our community and enhance our gospel witness here together, collaboratively. This is exciting. It's, it, it's something that needs to happen. Not just all of our churches isolated alone. We need to be working together. We all have the same mission, don't we? And so what's come of that is, is one important initiative and maybe the first of many that's being rolled out this summer in all of these churches, including our own here today, right now. This, this, this group of churches, these leaders, they've come together and they've produced a little flyer, which is a challenge, really. And you're going to get this as you leave here today. 
It's a salt and light, loving your neighbors, a salt and light initiative. And what this initiative is, there's two main parts to it. First is a corporate part involving prayer. What's planned is a series of prayer meetings throughout the summer in a number of different churches all throughout our region. In fact, next Monday, there's one uh, in a church in Geary that just happens to be a stone's throw away from the location where Bethel Church started in the first place. And people are going to gather from all these different churches to just pray. Pray that God would move through us and impact our community in a gospel way, in exciting ways. And I would hope that we would fill that church with people from Bethel next Monday, falling on our knees and asking God to do this work. But it also has another challenge, more of an individual challenge for us. In fact, it lays out throughout the course of the summer some different goals, opportunities for each of us. So that in June, the challenge is that you'll take a couple prayer walks through your neighborhood and just pray for all the people around you that are living right where you are. And then in July, you're intentional to reach out to those folks. Have a couple over for a meal, barbecue, something like that. Begin a relationship maybe. Take it deeper in a way you never have before. In, in August, maybe you do some more of that and you need to get a bigger group together. Maybe even bring some people from your small group there at the same time so that you can begin to expose people to Christian community and perhaps engage in conversations with them so that you are actually being on mission, waving this flag in the place where God has placed you. You see, Mission Them is not just about going across town. It's about growing across the street. It's about going next door. It's about going to the people who are right there next to us who so desperately need to hear this message as well. And we need to be emboldened witnesses for them. So as you leave, you're going to get this flyer, and I challenge you don't need to pray about this. You just need to do it. Okay? There's going to be possibly thousands of people throughout Northwest Indiana looking at this thing, trying to do this this summer. One of the churches is even Faith Church in Dyer. They've got a couple thousand people. They've already distributed this at their services. They're working on it. We're working on it too. We're kind of leading this, so guys, we need to lead the charge in it, all right? Can we do that? And we're going to be asking you how this goes. We're going to be asking you in your small groups, hey, how'd that summer initiative go to love your neighbors? We're looking for stories to share here in church. This isn't just a one-time thing we're going to throw out there and forget about it, all right? Because this is our mission. This is one way we can get about it. So, Let's help one another. Let's collaborate, support one another in our evangelistic efforts. This is the church. This is our mission. Let's be on it in ways like we never have before. Would you pray with me?